everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And that was Jimmy Kimmel hosting the Oscars a couple weeks ago and making what I have to assume is the only pharmaceutical joke that could fly on Hollywood's biggest night, right? The joke, of course, is that celebs are secretly on Ozempic for quick pre-Oscars weight loss. The implication there, too, is vanity. That Ozempic is something that vain people, especially women people, take to get thin or thinner without having to work for it, without having to hit the gym harder and watch what they're eating even more obsessively. And why? Well, because diet culture, beauty standards, and fat phobia, hello? Now, all of that might sound familiar if you listen to Unladylike's December episode, The Ozempic Weight Loss Craze. In it, I tried to figure out why this drug, which was developed to treat type 2 diabetes, was suddenly getting written up as Hollywood's latest weight loss trend, going viral on TikTok and making it much harder for diabetic folks to access Ozempic. Not because they wanted to lose weight necessarily, but because they just wanted to live day to day. My conclusion in that episode was that this was body-negative brainwashing, more or less, and that this medication was essentially an injectable eating disorder. So why am I talking about Ozempic again? Because almost as soon as that episode published, I started hearing from y'all. Unladies had a lot to say about aspects of this whole story that I'd overlooked or misinterpreted, starting with how Ozempic actually works. So it's part of a class of drugs known as GLP-1s, and other brand name GLP-1s include Trulicity, Manjaro, and Wagovi. One of the folks who fact-checked me is an unlady named David, who is a med school professor as well as an infectious disease, internal medicine, and addiction medicine doctor. And David wrote, you implied that the drug works only by making you nauseous and thereby not hungry and that it's like starving yourself. This is not true. It works by affecting the hunger centers in the brain as well as GI hormones that determine how food is handled, absorbed, and metabolized. Another listener named Adine had recently started taking Ozempic and wanted to clarify a few things as well. Hi, Kristen. This is Adine from Toronto, Canada, and I just wanted to thank you for your episode on Ozempic. I'm a fierce feminist and definitely against the pressure on mostly women to be thin. After gaining a lot of weight over the last couple of years due to stress, I tried to lose weight to go back to what feels like a comfortable place for me, but I didn't have much success and decided to try Ozempic. So I just wanted to note a couple of things that you said in your podcast that wasn't my experience. First, the cost of Ozempic. 
I live in Canada and the cost is $285 a month. It's still a heck of a lot and thank goodness my insurance covers it. Second, it started reducing my appetite right away, but I experienced zero nausea or any other side effects. I still love food. I still get hungry, but I'm not ravenous like before. Also, I don't hate my body, even at this weight. I don't hate it. It's not like people who want to lose weight always hate their body. It's more nuanced than that. It sometimes seems like just another way of body shaming when people criticize women for wanting to lose weight or getting Botox or coloring their grays and so on. While it's important to be critical of the weight loss, beauty and fashion industry and patriarchal norms that push women to modify their body, it's also important not to shame women for choosing some of these options. Criticizing the industry is a feminist position, but to me, criticizing the women themselves isn't feminism. Anyhow, thanks so much for listening to my perspective and keep up with your great podcasts. Adine's right. It is nuanced, both the individual side effects of GLP-1s like Ozempic, as well as our feelings about our own bodies. Or as a listener named Erica put it, your episode implied that my private medical decision to manage my weight is giving in to fat phobia. I do not accept this as true. An unlady named Jen shared a similar criticism and said, I felt your episode only approached Ozempic as a quick weight loss fad. It completely overlooked listeners who aren't just losing weight for vanity, those who are living in significantly larger bodies to begin with who need to lose some weight out of medical necessity. Jen was actually the very first listener I heard from mere hours after that episode went live. And as soon as I read her email, I knew that this episode, today's episode, needed to happen. So what are we going to be doing? Well, for starters, I'm going to be talking a bit less this time. I wanted this episode to be an opportunity for unladylike listeners to directly share a spectrum of reasons for taking off-label GLP-1s like Ozempic and Manjaro. Reasons including anxiety and depression, autism, binge eating disorders, chronic pain, IBS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and yes, weight loss. And along the way, I'm also reassessing what feels like a feminist taboo of intentional weight loss, as well as my own body positivity blind spots. First up, I'm talking to a listener named Danielle. I heard from Danielle right after that December Ozempic episode, and it was another story that made me go, oh, okay, definitely didn't know this could be a factor. And for Danielle, starting Manjaro was a pretty fraught decision and ultimately one that she doesn't regret. A lot of things changed for my body after, you know, after I turned 30, after I gave birth to my child, like hormones, metabolism, all of those things shift. And so even though I was eating and exercising the same, if not exercising more because you're chasing children, you know, I was just pretty much staying at the same weight or gaining weight pretty subtly. But at the same time, I've been working really hard with my therapist and on myself on like accepting my body the way that it was and like being confident and comfortable being fat and bodies can be healthy at every size. And so like, I feel so strongly about that, that I felt this shame of like, well, I don't want to take a medication 
to change my body because I want to feel good about my body how it is. But then I heard that it had been successful for people with like gastrointestinal illnesses and IBS, which I do struggle with. And I have my entire life, basically, like since I was a child, I've had something going on with my gastrointestinal system. And so how Manjaro works is it delays gastric emptying, meaning that it slows down your system. So if you have an overactive system, like I do and did, it slows down that process. So, so kind of slow, it slows down like the digestive process, basically. Yeah. So I did decide to take it because I'm like, okay, I'm going to think about this as not a weight loss solution, but as a treatment for IBS, because Mm -hmm. there is no treatment for IBS other than literally for me, it was basically taking like Imodium every single day, which is not really sustainable. And even with that, it's like running to the bathroom pretty much every time I eat anything, which is not a way to live my life. And it made working really difficult. It made like meetings really difficult. And so for me, I was like, okay, I'm going to try that this for this reason and make sure that it's really clear for myself that it's about dealing with this medical condition and not about my weight because I still wanted to feel good about myself at the weight I was at. And the way it works, I think it's similar with the other, with like Ozempic and other ones too, that you start on like the lowest dose possible and then you see how you do on that. And then over time you can increase your dose, like if it's not as effective, but some people don't need to increase much at all. And so for me, I started, I started at 2.5 and then I moved up to five. And basically that's what I'm still on. I tried going up again to 7.5 and my body didn't like that. It like gave me some like new side effects. And I was like, I'm just going to go back. And that's what worked for me. And basically the way my gastrointestinal system is working now is like, it's functioning like a yeah normal a normal person that's functioning Uh and it's been really great to not have to constantly think about it all the time. Like I would, before going for a long drive for a trip, I'd have to like take a bunch of medication and like not eat before going for like all of these things to think about, like, I have to like basically plan my life around what my stomach is going to do. And I don't, I don't feel like I have to do that anymore. And that's really nice. And then other like really like random things that I didn't expect or like know would be positive is like, I've noticed a decrease in my depression and anxiety where I just feel less like down a lot of the time. And I don't get like spikes in anxiety like I normally do just like every few days. And that's again, just, I don't even know what that is, but it's something that some people experience. People experience more anxiety. So again, it, it might depend on the way your body works. And then I also have a lot less fatigue than I had before. And so again, I don't know if that's related to weight loss, if that's related to probably not, because that kind of started right away before I even really lost much weight at all. If it's related to like my insulin resistance and that changing. Or if it's like my gut health is healthier and so I have less fatigue too. So whereas like before, before starting Manjaro, I would need to basically drink caffeinated drinks like coffee and energy drinks like throughout the day and also feel like I needed to like take a nap in the middle of the day 
to like survive the rest of the day. And now I basically stopped all of that. Like if I'm extra tired, I'll still like try to rest at some point during the day, but I, I stopped drinking as much caffeine. That's more of like an occasional, like when I feel like it, when I'm out at a coffee shop kind of thing, it's not something that I feel like I need in the same way. And what is the out of pocket cost for you? So for me, I've been lucky that I managed to get, I managed to start it at a time when there was like a manufacturer discounted coupon that is still working in some areas for some people. And that, that made it $25 for me. Oh, wow. And that's without insurance because insurance wouldn't cover it because it's not approved for weight loss by insurance. It's only approved for diabetes. I'm not, I am not diabetic, but that coupon. So some pharmacies already aren't accepting the coupon anymore and some will stop accepting it in June. And so once that happens and some people even now are paying out of pocket, it's like $1,010 or something like that. Yeah. Insane. Wow. So my plan is to stay on it as long as I can for $25 and then talk to my doctor about alternatives that are similar, like other GLP-1 agonists that would do the same thing, but are covered by insurance for weight loss. So again, like Manjaro is known for being like the best for like weight loss uses and also in like the best like new diabetes medication. But there are others that do basically the same thing that just don't work quite as well. So mm-hmm. my hope is that switching to one of those would work for me. And do you have any sense of whether your IBS symptoms will kind of flare back up, go kind of back to the way it was once you stop taking it? I think so, because basically when anyone stops taking it, everything that it was doing goes back to like what their baseline was. So whether that's like insulin resistance, metabolism, like restricted appetite, like all the things that it does, like it'll slowly go back to what the previous normal was. So my assumption is that the same thing would happen with like for me with IBS and gastric emptying. It's possible it would be a little bit better because if there was something going on with me that needed like time to heal itself, it's mm-hmm. possible that, like things could have got some things could have improved a little bit. Um, but ba- basically for it's like a medication that it needs to be lifelong for like a maintenance dose. So it wouldn't have to be like a high dose or anything or like as often, but there needs to be like some kind of maintenance, I think. And how do you feel about that? That was something that was really difficult for me to decide on too at the beginning was like, I don't want to start something that then I have to be like stuck on. But then it's like, well, if I don't, if it doesn't work and I don't like it, I don't have to stay on it. Like I could always Mm -hmm. stop and like gain some weight back and my body go back to functioning how it was. But then it's this trade-off of like, do I risk some maybe negative long-term side effects that could, could happen with any medication? Do I risk having to take it forever? Or do I go back to like spending my whole life thinking about my health and my stomach and like planning around that and feeling sick all of the time and feeling tired all of the time? And so it was like 
quality of life decision. Yeah. How, how would you rate the quality of life impact for you so far? It's been huge. I think at the beginning it would have been lower because in the beginning I did have like nausea and heartburn that I don't normally have. And I was like, this is awful. This sucks. I'm going to stop. Like that was like the first, it was like two days, the first two weeks. It wasn't even that bad, but I'm kind of like a wimp when it comes to feeling nauseous. And so I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know. It's just, it's been huge. I feel like to give it like a number, like one to 10, it'd be like an eight or something like a huge difference. This also gets to a big question that I've been thinking about. I've even had a hard time like figuring out the the right framing. So hopefully this makes sense. Do we sometimes get stuck in this binary of you can either love your body, like all caps, love your body 100% head to toe, or any deviation from that is just buying into our fat phobic diet culture? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that I actually like that your episode really got me thinking about that. And I also listened to another podcast about like, it wasn't about like Ozempic and medication specifically, but it was about, I think like diet culture. And then they talked a lot about Ozempic and medication and they, they're all, they also claim to be like a feminist body positive podcast. And they had like a celebrity person on there. I'm trying not to like name people, but they like went about it in a lot, a lot more binary than you did to where I was almost, I almost like had to stop the episode and be like, I can't listen to this anymore because the way they were talking about the way they were talking about how people should not change their body because of their weight they were like hardcore shaming and judging people for doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like, we need to like it. Yes. It is feminist to love your body at any size and feel confident with however your body feels and looks, but it's also feminist to respect other people for making their own decisions instead of like assuming that everyone needs to make the same decision. And I yeah. think, it's also important to consider like how much genetics plays a factor in all of this too, where it's like one person might need more medical help for something because of their genetics and environment and history and trauma and all of those things where someone else might not need that medical intervention. And it's also like, this is me reflecting on, the way that I presented it in that the first episode, like there was one listener who was like, I just want to be clear, like, I don't, I don't hate my body, a desire to change the shape of my body, even lose weight does not necessarily equate like body hatred. It got me thinking about how it's, it feels very overly simplistic and prescriptive on the feminist side to say this is what you should not do because it's really just kind of the other side of the coin of 
what is constantly happening with like medical fat phobia of going to the doctor and the, you know, diagnosis or treatment always being like, well, just lose weight. So it's like there's no there's no room for nuance on either side. Right. It's like there's no support either way. It's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, basically. Are there any kind of body or shape related conversations that you wish that feminists at large would be having more of? Right. Like, I think just working on like those assumptions and like not, yeah, not assuming anything on behalf of anyone else and like waiting to listen to that person and what they have to say. Well, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure listeners know about GLP-1s, your experience, anything like that? I think, I think remembering to advocate for themselves because it is really easy for doctors to be like, you don't need that. You need diet and exercise or, or same thing. Like you cut, you know, come in, like I've been to the doctor for chronic pain or my IBS or even like problems with my uterus. And they're like, you just need to lose weight. And then I lose weight, you know, like in the past I've lost like all the weight I had to lose and nothing changed. And it's like, no, there's, there's things that exist and it doesn't really matter what my body looks like or weighs for those things. And so like, you know, if your doctor or if any doctor is telling you that you're wrong about your own body, maybe it's time to look for a new doctor. We're back, and probably the most unexpected Ozempic story on Ladies Shared comes from a listener also named Danielle. My 12-year-old son is autistic, and he also has a rare genetic mutation. His brain doesn't send a signal to his body to tell his body to stop gaining weight. And due to his autism, he has a very limited number of foods that he will actually eat. And we have to work with behavioralists to try to get him to try new foods. For a lot of autistic people, food can just be a sensory nightmare with textures, flavors that aren't consistent, like from one blueberry to another. Um, So for all of these reasons, we started Ozempic in the late summer of 2022. And it really helped him a lot. It helped him regulate his eating. So he really was just eating when he was hungry and stopping when he was full. It cut down on this sort of ritualistic kind of eating that he did. He needs this medication and we've only been able to get it sporadically in November and early December and nothing since then. And it sounds like maybe by the end of March, early April, it might become available again. Um, You know, certainly Novo Nordisk needs to increase production, and it sounds like they've perhaps solved the production problem. But doctors really need to be responsible about prescribing this medication to people who don't need it, because people like my son who really do need it just can't get access to it. Speaking of people who really do need it, as Danielle puts it, I think a big factor that has given Ozempic such life in the media, besides the Hollywood of it all, is this ethical question of whether specifically people who do not have type 2 diabetes 
deserve to take Ozempic or other GLP-1s. I do think it's problematic that most of the Ozempic coverage I've seen is just diabetes-free, almost. Like, the patient population, absent for most of these conversations, are people with diabetes. So here is a listener named Natalie. Hi, Unladylike. I listened to your Ozempic episode, and I was both livid yet not very surprised. I take the drug for diabetes as well as to help with some weight loss. I'm what is medically termed morbidly obese, but I reject being classified in any way that doesn't truthfully show the wonderful person I am, fat and all. That said, when my doctor told me she might have to prescribe an alternative medicine because Ozempic was being backordered, I figured this was some sort of COVID-related issue with being supply-limited. Boy, was I pissed whenever I listened to the podcast to find out that people are trying to lose vanity pounds, and that was part of the reason why I might not be able to get the medicine I need. For me, Ozimbic hasn't been a journey. It's been hellish. The frequent vomiting at the drop of a hat. The pain is pretty constant, and I've mostly learned to just live with being sick all the time. It's become normal. I'm managing better lately with taking Zofran as soon as the slightest bit of nausea appears. My doctor recently upped my dose to one milligram per week with me in agreement. I figured I'd try the dosage again now that I'm coping better than before. I've also started eating less, but I find my stomach still is too upset to get up and move around much, so exercise has yet to become a part of my Ozempic journey. That said, I have lost some weight and I hope to continue. It's also nice to know that I was right about the pop body positivity movement. It's only for bodies that have already been seen as acceptable. And the joke of inclusivity is just another one played on fat people. Thanks so much for the podcast. Maybe unlady Dr. David can fill me in on why this might be, but anecdotally, I noticed that unladies I heard from taking GLP-1s for diabetes described much more intense symptoms and have had an especially difficult time getting their hands on them as Ozempic for weight loss has become so popular and also so widely publicized. One listener I heard from shared that she had gotten super sick out of the blue And she writes, it turns out I was an undiagnosed type 2 diabetic. It took another month to get any meds because of the Ozempic outage. Eventually, we settled on Trulicity, but it's so frustrating. And she went on to say how it's extra frustrating for her. Now when she sees people, they are complimenting her on how good she's looking. She's a little bit slimmer. Isn't that a good thing? And she resents those compliments so much because she's like, okay, actually, I have been sick. Like, this is not a positive outcome for me. I also heard from listeners like Deborah, who wrote, thank you for your piece on Ozempic. It's terribly frustrating to me as a type 2 diabetic that I nearly ran out of this medication I need because people are using it to lose what I think of as imaginary weight, insignificant, minimal extra pounds. As it is, I got a partial prescription, so I'm not out of the woods yet. 
And friends, neither is this episode. But first, we got to take a quick break. We're back. And I want to take a second to talk about certain phrases like imaginary weight, vanity weight that came up in some of the listener responses. And I understand what is meant by that in the context of our bullshit beauty standards and body standards. And I also think that we need to be careful with that kind of phrasing. Because the mental health aspect of all of this is very real and not just in the sense of us being brainwashed by fat phobia and diet culture. Listener Erica, who I mentioned at the top of the show, said, these drugs really have helped me repair my disordered relationship with food. And she describes how it's quieted the food noise in my head. Echoing that, Unlady Jen shared that the constant food chatter in my brain has quieted down. And that brings me to our next and final Unlady guest of the episode, listener Lauren. Lauren, in your email, the word that jumped out to me was life-changing. How has taking Manjaro been life-changing for you? Growing up, I was always the bigger girl in the friend group, and we were doing the same stuff. We were in the same sports. I was eating the same foods, or so I thought, you know, maybe they were eating less when I wasn't around them or whatever. But like, I was like, we have the same lifestyles. We go to the same restaurants. Our parents feed us the same stuff. Like, what am I doing wrong? You know, when you're young, people bully you a little bit. People were pretty nice at my school, but I definitely got called like, shrek at one point Ah. and like a little like little piggy drawings places it didn't bother me that much actually but i do remember it and i'm like oh i'm bigger and you know after years and years of that it does start to be like oh i'm i'm big and that's not good people like that's something to be made fun of and so obviously i tried every diet under the sun the one that worked best for me was intermittent fasting again i didn't really know why i just tried everything and so After it worked, I did kind of look into it a little bit and I was like, oh, something about blood sugar or whatever. When I was in high school, I got some like diagnostic tests. They diagnosed me with PCOS. They told me back then, like I was insulin resistant, meaning my body didn't make insulin enough. Sometimes when you have PCOS, like you get a slew of other symptoms, weight gain, hair loss, hair on your chin. And I had just kind of like resigned myself to like being the bigger girl, having some of these issues, whatever. Any time that I wanted to lose weight, constantly having to think about it, like with intermittent fasting, you're counting down the minutes till the clock strikes noon or whatever it is. And then when it hits, you know, if if you stop eating at 8 p.m., it's 11 or it's 7.59 and you're like shoving as much food (laughs) in your mouth. And that's that's not good either. That was like it was pretty obsessive. At one point, I got a trainer, lost a lot of weight from doing the trainer, then like just couldn't keep it up. So then I started this and I just noticed within the first week, all this mental noise around food was gone. It was so eye opening. I mean, it's it's I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but it's so crazy to live your life for like 33 years 
having this like mental image around food and like this this thought process and then to wake up and be like oh this must be how normal people feel around food they're not obsessed with it they're not thinking about it 24 7. yes you get really hungry but you eat and then you're like okay that's that's great i'm done you're not not automatically thinking about your next meal not automatically thinking like you know, did I eat too much? Did I eat too little? Like you're just satisfied and your body's like, okay, thank you for the food. And it still tastes good. Like everything's the same. You just kind of know when to stop eating. And, and it does worry me that eventually, like, what if I can't take it anymore? Cause you do just go back to it. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. a medicine you have to keep taking for the rest of your life. Cause it's your body chemistry, at least for some people who take it, I'm assuming most that it just, it totally changes your relationship with food. Do you feel like that uh, you, you talked about like the mental noise was quieted? Do you feel like it is opened up more room for other other things? Yes. yes, the answer is yes, and that's so funny you say that because I literally bought this. I don't know if you can see it behind me. The I guess the screen's blurry, but I bought a keyboard because I have so much. It sounds crazy, but I have so much more time when I'm not consumed by the thought of food or being anxious by it even you know sometimes mm-hmm. I would sit on the couch and be like okay like two hours until dinner what should I make that's going to be really healthy and I would spend those two hours like watching tv maybe even like trying to look up recipes or just like kind of just all around anxious and now I'm not now if I want to go to dinner with friends I'll text them 10 minutes before and be like want to go out and I know that when I go out I can order whatever I want and I'll be full at a normal time. Like I've actually started eating. I don't want to say worse because that makes it sound like I'm eating a bunch of fast food, but I was really cognizant of what I ate before, just not how much I would be like, Oh, I'll have the avocado toast at breakfast or like the salad, but I'll have four salads because I just keep eating, you know, I'm like, Oh, it's good for me. I'll just keep going. But now I'll order what I want at dinner. And I just like, I, I know that my body is going to be full at an appropriate time. And I have leftovers for like the first time in my entire life. I have leftovers in my fridge. It's so great. I'm also curious if you have experienced any negative side effects since taking it. Yeah. I've noticed that when I switch to a higher dose or just the first day or two from my shot, I'm really tired, like unexplicably sleepy. It's nice. I work from home. So sometimes I'll just do a little midday nap. No one ever, you know, no one needs to know. I can see how if you had a job where you had to be in an office or doing intensive, more, you know, I do math stuff on the computer. But if you had to be doing physical labor or anything, even where you were like standing, even in retail, it might be a little difficult. I haven't experienced any nausea. I think I've been pretty lucky. I just get a little bit tired and I'm sometimes a little bit dehydrated, but I take electrolyte powder because of it. Mm -hmm. So one big question that I've been thinking about a lot as well since the first episode on Ozempic and why I wanted to revisit it is in feminist kind of feminist discourse, does it feel like there's too much of a binary of like you are either supposed to be fully body positive 
no complaints whatsoever or you're just buying into like our fat phobic culture yes it's so hard to even like wrap my own head around the thoughts about it because I don't want to seem like I'm ever shaming someone who's fat or underweight or any size or any problem with their body. But I mean, me personally, I wish I thought of myself as beautiful when I was bigger, but I feel at least the type of weight that I gain or when I do gain weight, I'm not healthy when I do it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm getting weight, usually I'm not working out. Usually like it's just, it's just not going my way when I'm thinner I feel better physically and that's how I prefer myself. And then also throughout these years of being trained by the media, by magazines, by people calling me Shrek when I was younger or whatever it may be that like I should be thin. And as much as I wish that like I could have ignored that for 33 years and not have it affect me, like it just has. And I also just, you know, when I look at myself in photos, when I'm thinner, I like the outcome better. I post them instead of deleting them immediately on my phone. <laughs> and and I do think you can be beautiful at any size. I think health is important. I don't know. It there is kind of this line and you almost don't want to say anything either way cuz you feel like someone's going to be mad at you. But I've just kind of realized that like me, I want to be thin. If someone hates that, whatever, that's just how I feel about myself. <laughs> everyone else can do whatever they want. I would love for everyone to be healthy, whatever size that means for them. Like, I don't want anyone to have heart disease. I don't want anyone to like get winded when they go upstairs. But like me, I want to be thin and I want to be hot. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, especially everything that I've heard back from listeners, it's given given me pause to kind of reevaluate how how I talk about bodies, how I project my own body baggage onto conversations about it and being more mindful of that. Weight loss is so prescriptive and it's an unfortunate reality that so many women go to the doctor and the doctor's just like, oh, you have a problem, just lose weight. Yeah. But on the same flip side of that coin... Like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's like an overly prescriptive kind of feminist response to that to say, oh, we'll just ignore, ignore everything and like love your body unconditionally. Yeah. And it's with this medicine, too. You know, I don't, I've only told a couple friends that I'm taking it. A lot of the reaction is kind of negative. A lot of people say things like, oh, we'll just why don't you just stop eating so much or like go work out a little more or like you're okay and it's like of course yes I would love to do that and I've tried that for so long and I think if it was that easy we would all do it like there's something else that's not just like portion control that's doing it and it's like this something in our bodies mentally is not allowing us to do this and like I never really would have understood what that meant until I took it myself until I can feel these like mental effects that like something in my body is changing and it's sending these signals to my brain that are like completely changing the way I look at food. And like, that's, that's what must be what a normal person feels like a normal person who tells me, Oh, just eat a little bit less. And like, it's not that easy. (laughs) 
and I just feel more like a normal human being living life now. It's it's pretty crazy. All right, ladies, now it is your turn. Let me know what you thought if the conversations resonated, maybe enraged, confused, illuminated, anything. Uh, I'm so curious what y'all think. And also, I want to ask the same question I posed to Danielle and Lauren of, are there ways that feminist discourse around bodies needs to evolve? What kinds of things aren't we talking about when we are talking about body positivity and combating fat phobia? Because that that's the thing, right? That is the underlying truth in all of this, is that we do live in a fat phobic society and people of size are constantly discriminated against in all sorts of ways and that is something that we shouldn't lose sight of and at the same time a big takeaway for me is that our body talk could stand to get more nuanced speaking of which if you want to go deeper on diet culture and also the anti-black racism embedded in American fat phobia and diet culture, I highly recommend going back and listening to the Unladylike episode, How to Leave Dietland Part 2. Thank you so, so much, though, to every single one of you who wrote to me shared your concerns, shared your feelings and stories. And I just appreciate y'all trusting me enough to share and also holding me accountable, challenging me to do better because that's what it's all about. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can email me or send me your voice memos. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. You can also follow Unladylike on TikTok and Twitter at unladylikemedia. And if you care about the future of Unladylike and supporting feminist podcasting and these kinds of conversations, please consider becoming a patron. For $5 a month or more, you get instant access to nearly 150 bonus episodes a new bonus episode every single week, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, and all of my deepest gratitude. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia is where you can go and subscribe. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production, created, executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Aristotle Acevedo is our senior producer and engineer. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. I have just one, though, last question for you, Danielle. What is the most unladylike thing about you? I've been thinking very hard about this. <laughs> I also think of pretty much a different thing every time I listen to the episodes because I'm like, what would I say if I was asked this question? <laughs> and then I think of a new one like every single time I listen, thinking about all of this stuff that I don't feel embarrassed or ashamed to talk about my body and body functions and things that bodies do. Yeah. Lauren, I just have one last question for you. 
What is the most unladylike thing about you? Okay. Well, for a really long time, when I first moved to the city I live in now, I was invited to a dinner party and it was like my first time hanging out with this crew and I was kind of nervous and so I kept telling weird stories about my past and I told this one where I shit my pants at work and I won't go through the whole story now but there was this whole there was this like this whole year of me shitting my pants because I was on this medication that made me poop my pants and then for the next four or five years I was known as diarrhea girl in that friend group <laughs> and <laughs> until I got better friends with that crew that's just what they called me and now they call me by my real name which is <laughs> great <laughs> oh that's amazing Starbanks Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.